Welcome to Bite-Size Battles. On the pitch-dark night of the 19th of March, 1286, Scotland's King Alexander III urged his horse to ever greater speeds, galloping across vales and glens in a wind-driven storm. Against the advice of his companions, he was riding hard to see his new, young, and beautiful wife. Alexander was 44, his new queen, Yolanda, just 22. It was her birthday the next day, you see, and I'm sure he wanted to help her see it in. As so often with young and beautiful women, men lose their reason. The night was too dark to be riding, the storm too fierce and as Alexander neared his destination at Kinghorn, excuse the pun, his horse lost its footing in the lashing rain, and both he and the beast crashed down a steep and rocky embankment. He was found the next morning, on the sand of the shore, with a broken neck. Little did he know that his lust for his young queen was about to throw Scotland into decades of civil strife and plunge it into a bitter war with England where it struggled for its very existence. Such great and famous names are involved in this struggle, including William Wallace and Robert the Bruce, as well as the infamous Edward Longshanks. My own only slightly less illustrious name is Andrew Mackenzie. And as a Mackenzie, I have always been fascinated by the Scottish Wars of Independence. Welcome everyone to this grand tale of a small but proud nation's fight for freedom from a larger, richer and more aggressive neighbour. King Alexander's only heir was a three-year-old granddaughter, Margaret, the Maid of Norway. But en route to Scotland, the young Margaret herself died in 1290. So, with the Scottish throne empty, a full 13 claimants stepped forward. The two most powerful being John Balliol, Lord of Galloway, and Robert Bruce, the grandfather of the famous Robert the Bruce, Lord of Annandale. Prowling in the background, lay the English king, Edward I, licking his lips in anticipation of the opportunity about to present itself. Edward was an unusually successful king, known for combining military brilliance with administrative acumen. In general, he was a good king of England, but by the time of his death in 1307, he had more than earned his nickname the Hammer of the Scots. Fearing a Balliol-Bruce civil war, a group of Scottish lords and bishops known as the Guardians of Scotland invited Edward to mediate in the succession dispute. The result, in short, was that Balliol kissed Edward's backside a little more sweetly than Bruce did, and Edward made up his mind about who would be the more pliant. So, John Balliol was crowned King John of Scotland on the 30th of November, 1292, and both he and all of Scotland 
were required to pay homage to Edward as Lord Paramount. But this caused just a little resentment in Scotland. And when I say a little, I mean seething. So when Edward demanded that John cough up Scottish money and Scottish soldiers for England's war in France, John's council of noblemen demanded that he stiffen his spine. John caved into his nobles and refused Edward's demands. And instead, he sent ambassadors to France proposing a Franco-Scottish alliance. The French unsurprisingly agreed, happy to have a bunch of war-hungry Scots on England's doorstep. This agreement began what became known as the Old Alliance. France and Scotland united in their fight against the English. Edward, though, ever the spymaster, discovered John's betrayal and the scene was set for war. In March 1296, Edward moved swiftly north to the city of Berwick, on what was then Scotland's southeast coast. Berwick was one of the richest and greatest commercial trading centres in all of the British Isles, second only, in fact, to London. Knowing this and hoping to cow John into submission, Edward ordered it be sacked. The English stormed Berwick's wooden walls, slaughtered its garrison, and embarked on an orgy of destruction and massacre. The 15th century historian Walter Bower wrote that when the town had been taken and its citizens had submitted, Edward spared no one, whatever the age or sex, and for two days streams of blood flowed from the bodies of the slain for in his tyrannous rage he ordered 7,500 souls of both sexes to be massacred, so that mills could be turned round by the flow of their blood. The Scots were not idle, and the massacre at Berwick only made them bolder. John called the clans and his nobles to his banners, and he gathered an army at Haddington, close to Dunbar Castle, which guarded the coastal road from Berwick to Edinburgh along the North Sea shore. The castle sent an SOS to John when a contingent of Edward's English army arrived, and John dispatched a force of mounted knights to repel them. In response, the English left their infantry to lay siege to Dunbar Castle and sent their own mounted knights to meet the Scots in battle. This was to be the first major engagement of the Scottish Wars of Independence and was an almost entirely night-on-night contest. As knights, these two forces were made up of the leading figures of both kingdoms, the cream of the nobility, all testosterone and arrogance. Whoever came out on top would strike a major blow and the stakes for Scotland in particular couldn't have been higher. Lose, and the road to Edinburgh would be thrown open. The Scots cavalry arrived on the 27th of April and formed a line at the top of Dune Hill, overlooking Dunbar in the distance. The English knights advanced towards them, but had to cross a river the spot burned to get to them. 
Initially, the Scots held their strong defensive position at the top of the hill, but seeing that the English had become disorganised while crossing the river, their leader, Red Comyn, ordered a charge. With a war cry, armoured man and horse thundered downhill, lances and swords stretched before them, thirsting for English blood. But the uneven ground and poor discipline among the Scottish knights meant their line grew ragged, losing its cohesion in the descent. The English, on the other hand, who had now forded the spot burn more quickly than the Scots expected, reformed their own line and countercharged. The result was a cacophonous clash of iron, mail, and horse flesh, and the solid English line carved into the tattered Scottish ranks. The battle was over in a single charge. One English source says that over 10,000 Scots died at Dunbar, and while that number is too high to be believed, it was certainly a decisive English victory. We do know that over 100 high-status Scots were taken prisoner, and it effectively ended any chance of continued Scottish resistance in 1296. King John himself panicked and fled northwards, pursued by Edward. Such was the sense of disaster that several major castles were abandoned or surrendered to the English without a fight, including the key strongholds of Roxburgh and Stirling. Only Edinburgh Castle held out against the English siege engines, and even then, only for a week. In the mood for conquest, Edward sent his armies throughout central and northern Scotland, and with no other options left, John eventually yielded, giving himself up in July. What followed was a lengthy humiliation. On the 2nd of July, John confessed to rebellion and begged Edward's forgiveness. Five days later, he renounced the alliance with France. And then came the final dishonour. Dressed in Scotland's majestic regalia, on the 8th of July 1296, John presented himself at Montrose, where he was ceremoniously stripped of his royal robes. The English Bishop of Durham ripped the red and gold arms of Scotland from his surcoat, leaving John with the nickname Tomb Tabard, meaning empty coat. Following his ritual degradation, John and his son were led into captivity in England. And finally, in perhaps the most symbolic event of all, Edward had the Stone of Schoon, upon which the kings of Scotland had always been crowned, carried off to London. It remained there for 700 years, until it was finally returned to Scotland in 1996. With Scotland's throne empty once again, its key castles and cities in English control, and most of the Scottish nobles either in captivity or having pledged themselves to Edward, it seemed as if Scotland's destiny as an independent kingdom was ended. But Edward hadn't reckoned 
on the catalyzing influence of a Scottish knight. Just a few months after Edward had thought Scotland had been subdued, word reached his ears of a man who had killed an English sheriff in the Scottish town of Lanark, and who was now rousing the country to rebellion. Along with several other leaders of major Scottish uprisings like Andrew de Moray, this knight would prove to be the leader who would inspire Scotland to continue the fight, even in her darkest moments. Join us next time to meet William Wallace. Thanks for listening. See you then.